Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. These are not insurmountable problems, right? So when you make that case to other leaders, especially outside of engineering, I think it's important that, hey, we're not going for this ideal world of no technical debt. It's just that here's the impact of not focusing on it. Like the impact of not focusing on this technical debt is that we're going to see outages and there will be this false sense of progress because every time the engineers try to focus on some product work, they are going to have to go on this outage and solve that. I think the best way to put it really is you are treading water at that point. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Prioritization is critical to your engineering org's success during hypergrowth. In this episode, Surabhi Gupta, VP of Engineering at Robinhood, joins us to pull back the curtain behind Robinhood's hypergrowth story from the past two years and the principles behind how they were able to grow from an engineering org of 300 to over 1,000. We also cover topics like Surabhi's approach to org design, prioritization and eliminating bottlenecks, why process makes people happy, the benefits of flat orgs during hypergrowth. Plus, we get into things like how to build out the executive engineering team and how to set new hires and senior engineers up for success when they first join your team during hypergrowth. Prior to Robinhood, Serby spent seven years at Airbnb, where she was head of engineering for Airbnb's homes business. At Airbnb, she led the search, growth, guest, and host teams. And before that, she was a software engineer at Google, where she worked on web search, ranking, and predictive search. If you find yourself strapped in to the crazy roller coaster that is hypergrowth, this is going to be a great episode for you. Serby's going to spotlight what to look out for when everything is moving really fast around you. Enjoy our conversation with Serby Gupta. Serby, just want to say welcome. You're no stranger to ELC. You've joined us for two of our last summits, talking about a couple different conversations like cross-organization collaborations, managing managers. Now, we're really excited because we get to dive deeper into your story and some of the frameworks that you've used related to scaling, especially with your story at Robinhood. But first off, we just want to say thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Patrick and Jerry. Always nice talking to the two of you in the community that you've built. Well, we appreciate every chance and every opportunity we have to hang out with you, Serbi. For today, I was wondering if we could start by setting a little bit of context. You joined Robinhood almost two years ago which was really the beginning phase of a really rapid period of growth and scaling for Robinhood. So can you give us a little bit of context and bring us back to that moment in time where you first joined Robinhood? Where was the engineering organization at when you came in? And what were some of like the classes of challenges that you were dealing with then? Yeah, um, going back in time. So I started almost two years ago, actually soon after the pandemic started. It was remote. Now we talk about being remote and I think people are just very used to working in, in that environment. But at that point, it was still fairly new. 
And I honestly, I mean, I was very excited about joining the company, given the mission and, and just where things were. But I didn't realize just how much opportunity there was. And I saw that firsthand when I started. But, you know, from an engineering point of view, we were just seeing massive scale in 2020. And there had been a pretty massive outage, actually, before, just a couple of months before I started. My biggest priority, actually, when I came in was how do we have a more steady pace of development and really trying to understand like, hey, where are teams in that evolution and, and how are teams scaling from a technical point of view, given the increase in, in load. And, and to, get, to put that in numbers, we actually saw 10x traffic increase in 2020. That's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you think of that number, it's, you have to really look at all of your systems and, and see how they are architected. You know, we were a pretty young company. We Our first iOS product launched in 2015. And so really thinking of, hey, do we need to rebuild this entire service or re-architect this system? What I did was really just actually focused on two main things, which was focus and prioritization. Like I firmly believe that you have teams that sort of, they might be treading water. And I think it's important to identify when that's happening, where you plug one hole and then you see, you see another hole and you like put a bandaid on top of it. And you have this false sense of progress almost. And so I think it's important to sort of spot when that's happening. And, and the good news is whenever you're scaling, and again, we're not talking about people, just when your systems are seeing so much scale and load and you say, oh, we have so much technical debt. What's really important in that, scenario is it's you just have to prioritize fixing those problems and sometimes people have this tendency that okay i'm going to do the short-term fix and okay great like when i see another incident i'm going to work on that fix but really going in and identifying the root causes and giving teams the time to tackle those i found is actually the most important aspect the false notion of progress is really important thing to point out because people may feel satisfied by fixing stuff. They can see the immediate impact, but longer term, they might just accumulate more tech debts. Yeah, exactly. And I will say that as a new leader coming in, one thing that I found very valuable is that I could just be a voice for what people were experiencing. Like teams and, and individual ICs know what the problems are, right? So honestly, like I would recommend for every new leader, just go on a listening tour and you just become a spokesperson for them. So what I heard mm -hmm. from many people is that, hey, like we have all these priorities coming in. We have so much to do to just shore up our technical foundation. And then I could just help with making sure that what we were prioritizing and what we needed to do sort of all match together. Could you share a couple examples of that? Because I think when you shared the identifying teams treading water, I just had this really vivid image. I don't know if you've watched a lot of pirate movies, but like people on the bottom of a ship trying to plug a hole and it's still filling up with water and people are trying to deal with everything at once, but maybe that progress isn't happening like you're sharing. Do you have an example of some of those areas where you helped create that focus and prioritization to help, I guess, transcend that? Or maybe even on the other side of it, like some of the ways that you advocated for people, because I think it'd be really curious to hear what those conversations look like. Yeah. So one clear example I'll call out is you have to look and identify the choke points. So what that means mm -hmm. is you have certain teams that end up becoming a bottleneck and you see a lot of other teams kind of depending on them. So when I came in, there was this one really important product priority that we wanted to work on. 
And some people were telling me like, hey, we're not making progress here. And when I actually looked at it, it was that that team depended on our core brokerage team and they just had all these scaling challenges. And so in that situation, actually, the specific team within that organization, we looked at how many engineers they had and how many priorities they had coming to them. And it just didn't add up. And so really what we did, me along with my product counterpart and the leadership of the team, what we said is that, hey, let's just map out and see, okay, if you have 10 engineers on the team and you have, in that case, I think it was six projects, like how is that actually going to match? Like how many engineers do we actually need for each project? And then we, we didn't make the decision on which one to, to not do, but what we said is we know we can't do all of it. And so here are some ways of prioritizing these things. And then that was a conversation with our CEO and other leaders that, hey, here is the reality. So let's try to figure out kind of what decision and how to make those trade-offs. And it was actually an extremely productive conversation. I think that sometimes people think, oh, you can't push back or you can't challenge these decisions that have been made earlier. And actually what I've found is that if you go in with sort of explaining where things are and being clear on why you can't do all of it, you can actually have an extremely productive conversation. I was going to ask you about the approach to that prioritization conversation because the priorities versus the number of engineers not adding up, I feel like it's such a relatable experience for so many people. Can you share a little bit more about how you would enter into that conversation or navigate that conversation with the CEO or other executive team members? I So there are moments when it's very clear you can do this, which is around planning, right? And that's where you sort of really work on mapping these priorities. The example that I was giving when we did this was actually outside of planning because we were just finding that, hey, we're not making progress on this project and there's a very clear reason why. So in that case, we just put together this case and went, went and uh, I went and audited what is the team that's bottlenecked here? Why are they bottlenecked? Like really understanding that, hey, like, why do they have so many competing priorities? Because sometimes maybe it's more straightforward to say, hey, like, these things are just not as important. But what I found is as we went through it, it actually wasn't straightforward to say that, hey, you can just stop doing this. Like, I think in that scenario, it actually just was a case that we were trying to do more than we could, given where the technical foundation was. And I, I, I will say that as engineering leaders, it's very easy to just say, oh, the technical foundation isn't where it is, right? Because there's this sense of perfection and it's very hard <laughs> to achieve that. You'll always find some gap in your system. And so I do think that you have to take that extra critical eye and really understand or really be able to make the case on, hey, why is this technical debt that we are seeing like really impacting things? And in, in our case, we were seeing outages. And again, like I don't, I think every company goes through this and is able to tackle it. So these are solvable problems. And I think that's actually the other angle I would recommend people thinking about, which is these are not insurmountable problems, right? So when you make that case to to other leaders, especially outside of engineering, I think it's important that, hey, we're not going for this ideal world of no technical debt. It's just that here's the impact of not focusing on it. Like the impact of not focusing on this technical debt is that we're going to see outages and there will be this false sense of progress because every time the engineers try to focus on some product work, they are going to have to go on this outage and solve that. And so you're just, I think the best way to put it really is you are treading water at that point. I love that. I have a vivid memory of a company I worked for in the past, uh, and they were doing just that, put a bandaid on unbanded to a point that the whole product was frozen for a whole three to six months. 
no features at all in just bug fixes. So that's something that every company should avoid. And it's just so horrible to the business. Yeah. That must have been so frustrating, Jerry. Six months of just bug fixes. Oh my gosh. So you're talking about focus and prioritization. And let's zoom into now with where you and Robinhood and the engineering organization are at now. How has the organization evolved since then as a result of that focus and prioritization? I guess how have like some of the challenges changed since you first got involved and then two years to now? The problems that I think about now are actually very different from the ones from two years ago, which I'm happy about. One of the changes that we have seen over the last couple of years is that we have scaled a lot as an engineering organization. You know, when I started, we were about 300 engineers, about a thousand now. And I think it's very important to think of just how you scale and being very intentional about kind of what the needs are to make sure that you can be a healthy thousand person organization. And so I'm happy to share a little bit about that. I think I gasped because I was like, I would love to learn how do you scale? How do you create a healthy 1000 plus person organization? So yes, we would absolutely love to learn a little bit more about your method. I've thought of it as three different aspects to scaling, which is the technology, people and process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can start by saying, okay, what are the technical priorities? Let's make sure that's completely aligned. But really at the heart of it is the people. And I think of process as just how you get work done. Like ultimately you want people to have as few bottlenecks. You want as few things coming in their way. And so that's how I see kind of the three fitting together. But maybe to double click into that, because I think maybe examples will sort of help bring this to life. Starting off with, hey, what is the team going to accomplish over the next next year? And it, it's helpful to always have a longer term vision, but it should be very clear kind of where the organization is going over the next 12 months. So for example, if you want to solve your on-call burden and reliability, it's important that we are sharing the the best practices sort of across the org. And so from a technical point of view, it's like, hey, what's the strategy to to increase reliability? From a process perspective, what's important is how do you even know that you're measuring this right? How do you know that people can improve your your SEV process or your postmortem process? This is a little bit of how kind of these different aspects come into play. I think that process is actually one of the less appreciated aspects of scaling. And I actually think it's an incredibly important piece that is the foundation to make people happy and successful and having a technical foundation and making technology advances. Can you share us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because I think, I don't think I've, I've heard anybody ever explicitly say like process is the pathway to make people happy. Yeah, so double clicking into that Let's say you bring in some senior engineers and they identify some gaps. Let's say that gap that they identify is that we don't have a design doc review process. Like we are not maintaining a consistency in, in how services are being architected and built. And because of that, we could be diverging in standards. I think that's a great insight from a senior engineer. How do they actually drive change? You want to make it as easy as possible for all of this great talent that you're hiring to actually drive that change. 
And so to set this up for success, what we've done here at Robinhood is that we've invested in a strong technical programs function. And we have somebody that is then on point that can help take that burden away of, okay, do we need to bring together some engineers to write down the, are we lacking in the definition of technical standards? Are we lacking in kind of senior leadership across each of the individual teams that can make sure that they can shepherd that process into their teams, right? Who is going to think through how all of that gets operationalized and why is that process going to stick or what is the feedback there, right? And sometimes you can, you can give this responsibility to your senior engineers, but then they're spending time doing all these things that they could actually get more leverage on. This is just one example. I will say that what I see right now is that there are just constantly improvements that we want to make. Just again, because it's a dynamic organization. We're constantly building new things. Another example is actually our um, SEV process. I would say we've actually invested a lot in it and have made a lot of great improvements. So for example, we have an air traffic controller that this role where where the moment there's an incident, this person comes in, they help coordinate across all of the different functions of the Slack channel. There's a very specific way that this is run. And in addition to this, like, how do you pick those people? How do you train those people? How do you make sure that there's good tracking of incidents, that when there are corrective actions, that they're being tackled within every team, right? Or how do you analyze incidents to understand the recurring root causes? How do you make sure that they are on the roadmap? Who does all of this coordination across all of these different things? And so again, over there, we have a person that helps coordinate all of this. And that's why I said that I think process is sort of underappreciated because you sort mm -hmm. of say, okay, of course you should have all these things, but who is responsible for doing that and making sure it happens? Can we dig into, I'm very curious to learn how the team is structured before and after go from 300 to a thousand. So that gave a, a different way for people to understand what are the changes are going to be made, especially now you have, you just mentioned there are people specific for a particular role. So can you dive into that a bit more? Yeah, at the highest level, I actually think of it as two different types of teams. You have platform teams and you have product teams or business teams. And I think it's important to recognize the type of team you are and the way the leaders need to operate. So you have the business teams that are at the front line of building customer features, but they can't do that unless you have your platform teams, right? Which is infrastructure or fraud or customer care, customer support. And what I often find is that you want, what works well is that you keep pushing things down. And so let's say that you have two of your business areas that need some common logic. It's more efficient to have a team that can build some common abstractions that help both teams. And so for us here, it's been a journey of evolving our teams, going all the way from the initial structure to this, the, the product and the platform teams. And then I've talked about the technical programs organization, but we have that as well that kind of helps all of these teams. I have, I have a follow-up question about this. Is I think one of the questions I've been most excited to get your take on because the, the growth experience from 300 to 1,000, to me, it seems like there's a lot of complexities and nuances, especially as you are stratifying different functions underneath that with platform, product, QA, data science, and all of these other sort of engineering functions. When you were going through like this evolution over the last two years, how did you think about or approach 
the org design or the planning process for these different things? Was it a continuous operation? Were there sort of distinct summits that you had with other engineering leaders on the team to start to architect what that looked like? And I guess, how did you balance those different functions as they were being built out? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a good question. I think that you want to start by actually looking at, is there any glaring gap? And because as a new leader, and, and we haven't talked about this before, but you want to try to bet on internal talent where you can, and you need to give yourself enough time and runway to be able to develop talent. And so I think that it's important to start with, hey, is there any glaring gap where you need to actually hire someone from the outside? Right. So for us, one one example is when I started, we had we had our debit card product and we had two different teams that were working on it. And so teams themselves called out to me that like, hey, I think we should merge these into its own organization. And so that's what we decided to do. And then I hired a leader for that. Right. Or there was another area where we didn't have a consolidated infrastructure organization. And so we consolidated that and hired a head of infrastructure. And so I think that I would say it's a journey. It's important to pace yourself. And then sometimes you actually, and again, like there's no one single playbook here, but I would say that like a strategy that I used initially because I wanted to see which teams were able to scale is I had a slightly flatter organization and then I worked on narrowing it. And this just gave me some time to be able to look at different areas and and organizations are living and breathing. They're going to keep evolving. And so I do think that for me, I think of it as a two-year journey. It's not something that I came in and I said on day one, all right, like this is the end state and how do I get there as quickly as possible? (laughs) I think you have to really kind of keep evolving the structure and try to not outpace kind of where the organization is or what it needs. A quick follow-up on the flat team structure is that true that early on, keep it flat will save the space for a little on going narrow and be more hierarchical once you have no more more understanding of what you need? Because I can't imagine the, the reverse of that from a hierarchical, more deep org structure to a more flat one requires more churn because almost can be perceived as a, a reorg versus adding on more layers of org structure as, as needed because that reflects the maturity of a certain parts of an organization. Yeah, I would say that overall kind of org structure scaling, it's always a point in time. Like you can look at it as being 300 to 1,000 engineers, but in two years we could be, I don't know, 2,000 engineers. And then you could say, okay, are you flat or hierarchical in the 1,000 to 2,000? And so I really think that it is a journey and What's important is that you feel you have the right leaders and the right roles. And especially in periods of hyper growth, like people's roles are changing every three to six months. Like it Mm. it is changing so quickly that people might not even know their own sort of interest. Or they might say that, hey, like this role is no longer fun for me. I think that being a little bit flatter, I think gave me the ability to just to work with different leaders and help grow them and and help understand their own interests. I do think that, you know, a lot of people say like, ideally you should have six and six to no more than eight kind of direct reports. And I do think it's a good goal to have, but 
I think, Jerry, to your point, like if you are scaling very quickly and you are very hierarchical, it does give you lesser dimensions in which you can make changes and it would feel like a more massive reorg. Yeah, and also requires more coordination if there's more middle layers, right? It's more flat structure in a certain way. If you can have the capacity, it's more efficient. Like you have a, a central hub, so to have a direct communication with all the, all the nodes. I really appreciate it, Serbi, about how you've captured just how dynamic the experience of what it is to be like in a really rapidly scaling organization, like capturing the role changes every three to six months. And what you said about betting on internal talent where you can in that environment where people are changing roles every three to six months, I think is really powerful because that helps equip the organization to be able to adjust to the needs or demands or the changing environment that the company is sitting in. And so for me, uh, having experienced that a, a couple different times at different startups, like it's so true. Y- your role changes every three months. I know Jerry and I talk about this. It's like the class of things that we're challenged with last week is very different than what this week is. And it's so interesting. Along this journey, were there any questions that you asked yourself, like going through this, planning out the strategic direction of the engineering organization that you found to be really helpful? So like similar to like, is there any glaring gaps? I think that was such a powerful question to help identify kind of the early decisions. Were there other questions along this journey that you found to be really helpful? Yeah, so one question I I do ask, is there a clear single owner for a problem? To dive a little bit deeper into that, let's say that I called out like, hey, we had this debit card product. Who is the owner for that, right? Or, hey, this set of infrastructure problems actually needs coordination across these three different teams. Hey, it would be helpful to have someone that can think through how those three teams work together. So where is there a lot of coordination? Another one is the product and the platform teams. And I had this uh, with one product team that really had two very different components. And the expectations even of leadership were that, hey, this is a product team, what are they shipping? But actually, when you dove into what they needed to do, a lot of it was this more platform work. And so I think even in terms of kind of, hey, what is this team? What does success mean for them? Is that aligned with how everybody else is thinking of it? That was kind of a lens I took when I looked at different teams. And then I did take the functional view as well. The functional view meaning how is our TPM function, our QA, our data science, how all of those functions working with the rest of the organization. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I can see you asking both of those questions almost in parallel can help create a lot of clarity about leaking functionally what do we need, but also how is this team actually considering success for themselves? I think that question could reveal a lot of good insights. I wanted to go back to some of the things that you mentioned about building out some of like the platform organization or the product organization or even infrastructure and some of the other functions you talked about. Because how did you think about building out the different heads of function or the different executive engineering organizations? Was there a certain approach for this is now a formal like group or was it because it reached a certain level of maturity and you had the right leader in place to sort of have it become its own entity? What was that like? 
Yeah, I definitely thought of just in that process of being flat and then consolidating more. Hey, what are the top level team and who are the leaders for those teams that are going to help scale this? And again, we've talked about it being a journey and where we are now is very different from where we were when I first joined. And 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 that we are 3x the size and so a lot of that is expected. Was there a certain sequence of roles that you found to be most helpful? I know you talked about one of the powerful questions being, are there any glaring gaps? I imagine that probably played a role in like the the prioritization of when certain things happened. But is there a certain way you thought about sequencing certain roles or certain functions? I started with the, the payments organization, but actually very quickly opened up uh, a few more roles. I, I talked about infrastructure, but actually another area that I did focus on was I hired a, a chief information officer. And I did that sometime last year when I was observing that, hey, we're going to be a much larger organization, almost 4,000 employees. And we have a lot of these platform teams that it would help having a leader who could think through all of these different areas together. And so that was a role that I created, again, thinking of where the company was going and just being a public company, how we would want to evolve our thinking in that area. And I wouldn't say that there's any... I, I don't at least have, you know, a magic recipe to sort of all of the roles to create. But I do think that one skill has served me well in thinking through all of this. It's that being very aware of where is the company going? What is the plan that every area has? And being quick to put all of those things together. Like sometimes you see that, okay, this team is in a big hole. And, and it's understandable, Right. There, there is going to be some area that wasn't invested as much as we should have. But what you'll find is that the leader can proactively come and say, hey, at this point now, this is going to become a big risk if we don't invest in it. And, come, and, and I've seen some leaders do a phenomenal job with this, which is, hey, like, here's the cost of not investing in this. And, and here's the impact to the company, right? Where people are actually almost able to take themselves out of it and just look at the company and say, hey, here's why this is, this is not going to be a good outcome. And I just feel that those leaders are able to get a lot of support because you look at it and you say, yeah, that's a very reasonable point of view. I think for me, kind of, it's always when I talk to my direct reports also, like really understand how they're thinking of the problems that they see. Because again, everybody is going to have problems, right? You can have set up your team perfectly and there will still be some problem. But the leaders that are really able to sort of think through those problems and say, yes, I see these problems, but here's how I'm thinking of tackling it. Like those are really the leaders that you can you, you can just see that they're going to they're going to grow and blossom. I really appreciate that. I wanted to go back into what you'd mentioned about bringing on the, the CIO. You're talking about how you were spotting the needs of the company is you're getting to a scale of where you were going to bring on 4,000 or so people. So when you're looking at like the different needs of the roles, are there any signals that help you sort of anticipate the emerging or evolving needs of the company that help you sort of spot which ones you need next? Yeah, I, I will say that for leaders, I think it's very valuable to have a benchmark in your mind of where companies, let's say 2x your size, how they're organized. And again, it doesn't mean that it's an exact playbook that you apply, but sometimes what I've seen is that people come from really big companies and then when they join a much smaller company, it sort of struggle to, to figure out how to make these roles meet because the delta is just so large. 
And so for me, I spent many years prior to this at a company a little bit bigger than us. So that knowledge was just very helpful because then you have a sense of kind of, hey, like what are the gaps that we are going to see? And, and again, it just helps you kind of think through like, okay, what are the problems that we are seeing? The other is, I think it's important to talk to people across the organization and understanding what gaps they are seeing and understanding expectations from these other organizations. And you put all of that together and you understand your people well. And so what I did was really work with them and understand like, hey, if I give them feedback, how do they respond? Or if I call out a gap that I've heard from another part of the organization, how do they take that feedback and and how do they respond? And sometimes, you know, a great example of this is somebody will own this and say, okay, great. We actually, we slipped on this, but you know, here's why we're going to be much better in three months, right? And either I need, I'm creating these roles or something else. And so I think that, I think to your original question of how do you know you need to create certain roles? I think it's that you have what you have to treat as a constant is that people's roles are constantly going to evolve. While some problems might be very small to solve today, in three to six months, they're actually big problems to solve. And so the leaders that are able to kind of look at those gaps, sort of like the way I'm saying, like, it's important for me to look across the organization and see, is this other function that my team supports? Are they seeing this big glaring gap? I think that for the leader running a team, they have to do their own sort of analysis and figure out, hey, why is my roadmap actually the right roadmap, right? And I've seen some people that like build up a really good intake process or have a really great communication structure, right? And so it's very clear, I think, that who is able to rise up just as all of the requirements are, are changing and evolving. I want to go back to the the three ways to to scale. You mentioned people, process, and technology. So going back to the people part, I know bringing a lot of people in a relative certain amount of time can be challenging in terms of culture alignment. So what are the tips and insights you can share with our audience that typical challenges and ways people can handle those challenges when they bring a lot of people in a certain amount of time? Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about people because people, that's the foundation for anything that we do. I believe pretty strongly in making sure that people are set up to do their best work. And actually, it starts from, uh, it starts all the way from recruiting when you first talk to candidates, but especially when they start, how do you make sure that people are set up for success? And I think it's a slightly different experience depending on sort of the experience that you come with, right? As a new grad, you're trying to figure out kind of, hey, what is this real world going to be like? And then you have people that come from other companies that come with all these expectations, right? Oh, we use this programming language here and we use this technology here. So how do you help them really understand what it means to be an engineer at Robinhood? And then you have the really senior leaders that are brought in to solve a specific problem. And and I think it's very important that as an organization, we set them up for success. Helping a leader be successful, I think, is, an, is a very important sort of process to think through. And it's not as simple as like, oh, you're going to come in, like meet meet a few of these people and great, it's all going to work amazingly well. Yeah, success means very different things for uh, individuals differently. Can we double click on the bringing in more senior engineering leaders and helping set them up for success a little bit? Are there any practices or structural things or... I guess, frameworks that are helpful when you're bringing in more senior leaders who are coming in to solve that specific problem? How do you set them up for success? 
Yeah, um, there's a couple of things that I've done. So one is actually for each of my leaders that have come in, we have an onboarding document, which is actually pretty detailed. A number of people have told me like, oh, we haven't actually seen such a detailed document. Everything from learning about the organization and their team to the people they should meet to expectations. What are their 30, 60 day expectations? I, I think that just helps as a foundation for them. And that is that has been helpful. Another thing that I do is, at around the 90-day mark, actually collecting some feedback for them. And I've found this to also be very valuable because you do want to give leaders some time to land. But what's important is that you get that early pulse on what are people seeing and feeling. And, you know, the reason for this is people will come from all sorts of companies, right? And, and sometimes it can be that the way you communicate within your company is just different. Right, the tools that you use, the the cadence that's expected, how you engage with other leaders, how you communicate what your team is doing. Everything can just it requires some calibration. And I think that as much as they can hear sort of how they are landing, I I found it to help them a lot. And and honestly, all of my leaders have really appreciated getting that picture. If I may indulge myself for another question, is that now everyone's remote. So how do you help each employee or new member of the, the company to have a personal and emotional connection with the, the company, the mission, the culture? Because now we don't have a chance to go to the office and experience, get to know the culture through a very physical way. But now that's no longer possible. So how do you cultivate that sense of belonging? Especially when we coming from all different backgrounds and from all the places. Yeah, so one of the programs we've actually invested in is a boot camp program, an onboarding program. And I think a lot of people might think that, oh, you know, maybe I'm too big or too small for this. I'll share a little bit about how we've thought of it. I think there are three core components. There is the learning, the technical learning. What does it mean to be an engineer, engineer here? The second is the social component, which is how do you form a connection with other people, other engineers? I think that initial cohort there's something, I think there can be something very special to it. And I noticed this, by the way, when I joined Robin Hood, it was soon after we had a pandemic and you're on these video calls and you finish your session and then you just hit end and, and everybody's out, right? You don't have that, oh, I can just turn to the person sitting next to me and, and ask them a question and have, we can go have lunch together. And so um, really investing in that kind of social environment, you do have to put an effort into it because it'll really help all of the new folks that are joining. And then the third part, actually, which might make sense, might not for each organization, is how do people get allocated to teams? What we found is that we built this for the time period that we were scaling very quickly, and we were just adding a lot of engineers. And what we felt is that from the time we talked to them to when we started, when they would start, things would just change so much oh, that actually giving them the opportunity to pick their team when they start, we actually felt that it would be helpful for, for both kind of the engineers and for us in terms of making sure people could go to the highest priority areas. I really like the cohort model to get people on board. I still remember, folks, when I, uh, in my previous companies, even years after, I still remember the first day when I get into the company, who started with me? on the same day. So that special connection can really provide a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support after people go into a company. And also help 
to connect more connections among different nodes so they can they have questions for something they know who to who to talk to yeah actually another thing i would recommend also is like keeping the stories alive right every company you have these traditions and i think it's it's really important to keep reinforcing them and actually sharing them when people start and one of the most striking things for me actually was when i started we still do this but a weekly all hands and it always starts with sharing the mission of the company and i just think that's such a cool and unique aspect of robin hood where it's like reminding people every week right that hey this is why we're all here and this is what we're after every week that's amazing so we have a few minutes left, Serbi, and we have a couple rapid-fire questions we wanted to ask you. But when you were mentioning the team allocation element, I was wondering if you could just give a little bit of an illustration of what that mutual determination process looked like. Are there any kind of mechanics in place to help people determine the, the team fit? Can you just give us a little bit more info there? Yeah, and, and again, this is where it's, we talked about the process, which is you need someone to make sure that this this entire process is going to be set up. And so we have dedicated people that make sure this works well, which is, hey, what are the highest priority teams? And then how do people express their preferences? And, and how do we make sure that the match is good both ways? So we, we do have a whole kind of process that's built out and what mm-hmm. happens on the fifth day that somebody's here and how do they learn about the teams? How do they meet with some people? How do they put in their preferences? And then how do they understand the team that, that makes most sense? That's great. That's so why I see like internally there's a determination of which teams are highest priority in that moment of that onboarding. And then there's a little bit of the how are people learning about the teams? And so are you doing, is it like presentations or teams kind of presenting here are the problems we're working on and like this is like what's to come in the next three to six months? Or what I guess is what's that process look like? Yeah. And by the way, it also keeps evolving because what you can find is if you start these presentations, then people can get inundated with being in like a few hours of oh, presentations. And so yeah. I think that even here, it's very important to like, you do something, but then you get feedback and okay, is this actually still working two months later? But yeah, yeah our, our process is that engineers get to hear from teams and, and we do time box. Time should be very it. cautious about how much information gets shared at once. I really admire that, I guess, being cognizant of information overload in that moment. Because you're starting a new job and it's like totally overwhelming. Anyway, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? We've got a couple of really fun ones for you. Sure. Perfect. All right. Well, the first one, what are you reading or listening to right now? Uh-huh. Outside of this podcast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I started reading this book called The Ascent of Money. And mostly because I think just being in fintech, it's just interesting to see kind of how money even came about and and just how it's evolved and like human psychology and all of it. I love that. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I'm a big fan of how decisions are made and making sure that it's very effective. And so this is a Robin Hood thing. But when I started, I would look at all of these documents and they would have a rapid framework where it was very clear sort of the roles and who gets to approve, who gets to provide input, et cetera. And I just, I found that actually just really great that it was such a clear practice. And and I use that as well, which is, do people understand who gets to make a decision? That one really resonates. I like that a lot. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's really interesting to you or that hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I can share a trend that I'm seeing. It is mainstream, but I don't think the solution is clear And that's just how we work. Like a lot of people think of this as, oh, is this kind of where we work? Is it remote work or is it the 
tools and there are so many different tools to use. I just think that the process of doing work is very complicated. And what you do for project management and what you do for communication and what you do for video conferencing and your calendar and your email and your Slack. And I just think that the ecosystem is very complicated and work has evolved to be hybrid, right? I think it's initially, it was like one of these extremes. Are you going to be only in person or only remote? And I think that people enjoy that kind of getting together in person to brainstorm. And so I just think that I'm really interested to see how all of this really comes together and how we simplify all of this. Like kind of what we were saying, like you become flat and then hierarchical. I want to see how, you know, I think there's this like consolidation phase that needs to happen. I'm really, really excited to see how that works as well. And and I, I think one of the things I've been reflecting on is you could recreate the same output of work, but how you achieve that output or like the emotional experience of work or the amount of stress or anxiety that that causes you to reach that certain level of output can be very different. Um, and that's something that Jerry and I have talked about a couple of times, because I think for a lot of folks, like the experience of work over the last two years has been really stressful because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of, I'm really anxious or I'm really stressed or scared and I still have to do these things, but then how do you change the work environment, either in-person or hybrid, to, to change that experience? Um, Shruby, just mentioned something that I'm really passionate about and been thinking a lot about the tools and the fragmentation of the tools and in terms of creating a coherent work experience. So I'm going to follow up with some, something separately on that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right, two more quick questions, Shruby. What's the, your favorite or most powerful question to ask or be asked? I like asking people what, they call out as their own strengths and areas for growth. I just think that kind of seeing how people reflect on what they've heard and learning from their wins and maybe things that didn't go the way they want and how they talk about it. I just love hearing that from people directly. I'm on the same page. Yes. And I think to speak to this conversation, it's been so, so special to hear your reflections on the personal leadership growth that you've experienced, but also the the growth within the engineering organization at Robinhood, just to see your reflections on that has been really special. Our final question, Serbi, is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or some quote that's been really resonating with you as of late? Yeah, actually, this quote, or something that my um, grad school advisor told me once, which was, when in doubt, err on the side of generosity. And I just really like that quote and I, it's still relevant to me many years after I heard that. And so I would say that's the one that stands out. I feel lighter after that. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Serbi. Jerry, any final words before we wrap this thing up? I just wish we had more time to <laughs> dig in further. But thanks a lot for spending the time with us. Yep. Serbi, thank you so much for, for just opening up your mind to how you think about everything. I mean, this was, this was absolutely amazing. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Serbi Gupta. When Serbi first joined Robinhood, her main priorities were to bring focus and prioritization to the engineering team. This helped them transcend the false sense of progress that can sometimes exist. Her approach was to be a voice for the problems that people on the team are experiencing. Your ICs know the problems, you just have to ask them. So she went on a listening tour and from there was able to identify different bottlenecks in the organization. She then worked with those different teams with product and other execs to prioritize and then navigate the appropriate trade-offs in response. 
in this process, tech debt came up quite a lot here. So it's important to communicate the impact of not focusing on certain technical debt and identifying what you as a company can be okay with. And the example that Serby shared was when they were navigating doing new product work while experiencing outages. When thinking about scaling, Serby focuses on people, process, and technology. Your goal is to make it as easy as possible for the talent that you're bringing in to drive meaningful change. And process is one of those undervalued parts of scaling that can help you accomplish that. One of the ways that Robinhood did this is they invested in building a technical programs function to help take on some of that process burden, to give senior engineers more time to work on other areas of high leverage. For example, the technical programs function helped define and uphold technical standards across different orgs. They also created an air traffic controller role for their SEV process, who helps coordinate incident response and analysis. Robinhood also evolved engineering from a flat organization to mature out a platform team that's focused more on infrastructure, and then a product team focused more on customer features. Given how fast people's roles change in a hypergrowth environment, so think like timelines like every three to six months, someone's role's changing, starting Flatter created more opportunities for people within engineering to grow and better understand their interests, which then gives you more freedom and flexibility as you mature out those new teams to place people into different specializations. As you're designing how you want your org to evolve, identify if there are any glaring gaps and is there internal talent that you can then take a bet on to lead some of those gaps? Or do you need to bring someone in from the outside to meet those needs? A few helpful questions from Serby. Is there a clear owner? What does success look like for this team? Is that success aligned with how everyone else thinks of it? How are all of the other functions working together within the rest of the org? As your organization evolves, one of the most critical skills is your ability to advocate for resources. A couple tips here. Be aware of where the company is going and then proactively share, if we don't invest in X, this will become a big risk. Here's the cost of not investing in X and here's the impact of that to the company. Some signals to help you spot some of those evolving needs. Have a benchmark of how companies about twice your size are organized to help give you a sense of what some of the gaps might be. Note, this is not a universal rule, just a helpful benchmark. You can also talk to people across your organization to understand some of the gaps that they're seeing. Again, some of the frontline people are going to be your best pulse on what's going on. And then from there, you can start to really form and composite an approach. One of the most interesting processes was how Robinhood does team allocation. Instead of hiring for a specific role or team, they make a hire, then they move those new hires through a process to help them identify and find mutual fit within different teams. And here's a little bit about what that process might look like. So first they have a clear owner. So someone whose role is to lead the entire team allocation process. They identify the highest priority teams and then new hires are introduced to those different teams and are able to then express their preference. Then they determine if there's a mutual fit for different teams. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.